Chapter Nine of Green Mantle. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Tom Weiss, Tom's Audiobooks.com. Green Mantle by John Buckham. Chapter Nine: The Return of the Straggler. Before I turned in that evening, I had done some good hours' work in the engine room. The boat was oil-fired and in very fair order, so my duties did not look as if they would be heavy. There was nobody who could be properly called an engineer, only, besides the furnace-man, a couple of lads from Hamburg who had been a year ago apprentices in a shipbuilding yard. They were civil fellows, both of them consumptive, who did what I told them and said little. By bedtime, if you had seen me in my blue jumper, a pair of carpet-slippers and a flat-cap, all the property of the deceased Walter, you would have sworn I had been bred to the firing of river-boats, whereas I had acquired most of my knowledge on one run down the Zambezi, when the proper engineer got drunk and fell overboard among the crocodiles. The captain, they called him Shank, was out of his bearings in the job. He was a Frisian and a first-class deep-water seaman, but since he knew the Rhine Delta, and because the German mercantile marine was laid on the ice till the end of the war, they had turned him on to this show. He was bored by the business and didn't understand it very well. The river charts puzzled him, and though it was pretty plain going for hundreds of miles, yet he was in a perpetual fidget about the pilotage. You could see that he would have been far more in his element smelling his way through the shoals of the Ems mouth or beating against the nor'easter in the shallow Baltic. He had six barges in tow, but the heavy flood of the Danube made it an easy job except when it came to going slow. There were two men on each barge who came aboard every morning to draw rations. That was a funny business, for we never lay two if we could help it. There was a dinghy belonging to each barge, and the men used to row to the next and get a lift in that barge's dinghy, and so forth. Six men would appear the dinghy of the barge nearest us and carry off supplies for the rest. The men were mostly Frisians, slow-spoken, sandy-haired lads, very like the breed you strike on the Essex coast. It was the fact that Schenk was really a deep-water sailor and so a novice to the job that made me get on with him. He was a good fellow and quite willing to take a hint, so before I had been twenty-four hours on board he was telling me all his difficulties, and I was doing my best to cheer him. And difficulties became thick, because the next night was New Year's Eve. I knew that that night was a season of gaiety in Scotland, but Scotland wasn't in it with the fatherland. Even Shank, though he was in charge of valuable stores and was voyaging against time, was quite clear that the men must have permission for some kind of vino. Just before darkness we came abreast a fair-sized town, whose name I never discovered, and decided to lie to for the night. The arrangement was that one man should be left on guard in each barge, and the other get four hours' leave ashore. Then he would return and relieve his friend, who should proceed to do the same thing. I foresaw that there would be some fun when the first batch returned, but I did not dare to protest. I was desperately anxious to get past the Austrian frontier, for I had a half-notion we might be searched there, but Schenk took his Sylvester Aubin business so seriously that I would have risked a row if I had tried to argue. The upshot was what I expected. 
we got the first batch aboard about midnight, blind to the world, and the others straggled in at all hours next morning. I stuck to the boat for obvious reasons, but next day it became too serious, and I had to go ashore with the captain to try and round up the stragglers. We got them all in but two, and I am inclined to think these two had never meant to come back. If I had a soft job like a river boat, I shouldn't be inclined to run away in the middle of Germany with the certainty that my best fate would be to be scooped up for the trenches. But your Frisian has no more imagination than a haddock. The absentees were both watchmen from the barges, and I fancied the monotony of the life had got on their nerves. The captain was in a raging temper, for he was short-handed to begin with. He would have started a press gang, but there was no superfluity of men in that township. Nothing but boys and grandfathers. As I was helping to run the trip, I was pretty annoyed also, and I sluiced down the drunkards with icy Danube water, using all the worst language I knew in Dutch and German. It was a raw morning, and as we raged through the riverside streets, I remember I heard the dry cackle of wild geese going overhead and wished I could get a shot at them. I told one fellow, he was the most troublesome, that he was a disgrace to a great empire and was only fit to fight with the filthy English. "'Got in heaven,' said the captain, "'we can delay no longer. We must make shift the best we can. I can spare one man from the deckhands, and you must give up one from the engine-room.' That was arranged, and we were tearing back rather short in the wind when I espied a figure sitting on a bench beside the booking-office on the pier. It was a slim figure in an old suit of khaki, some cast-off duds which had long lost the semblance of a uniform. It had a gentle face and was smoking peacefully, looking out upon the river and the boats, and us noisy fellows with meek philosophical eyes. If I had seen General French sitting there and looking like nothing on earth, I couldn't have been more surprised. The man stared at me without recognition. He was waiting for his cue. I spoke rapidly in Sesetu, for I was afraid the captain might know Dutch. "'Where have you come from?' I asked. "'They shut me up in Tronk,' said Peter, and I ran away. "'I am tired, Cornelius, and want to continue the journey by boat.' "'Remember you have worked for me in Africa,' I said. "'You are just home from Jamaraland. You are a German who has lived thirty years away from home. You can tend the furnace and have worked in mines.' Then I spoke to the captain. Here is a fellow who used to be in my employ, Captain Schenk. It's almighty luck we struck him. He's old and not very strong in the head, but I'll go bail he's a good worker. He says he'll come with us and I can use him in the engine room. Stand up, said the captain. Peter stood up, light and slim and wiry as a leopard. A sailor does not judge men by girth and weight. He'll do, said Schenk, and the next minute he was readjusting his crews and giving the strayed revelers the rough side of his tongue. As it chanced, I couldn't keep Peter with me, but had to send him to one of the barges, and I had time for no more than five words with him when I told him to hold his tongue and live up to his reputation as a half-wit. That accursed Sylvester Aubin had played havoc with the whole outfit, and the captain and I were weary men before we got things straight. In one way it turned out well. That afternoon we passed the frontier, and I never knew it till I saw a man in a strange uniform come aboard who copied some figures on a schedule and brought us a mail. With my dirty face and general air of absorption and duty, 
I must have been an unsuspicious figure. He took down the names of the men in barges, and Peter's name was given as it appeared on the ship's roll. Anton Blum. "'You must feel it strange, Herr Brandt,' said the captain, "'to be scrutinized by a policeman. You who give orders, I doubt not, to many policemen.' I shrugged my shoulders. "'It is my profession. It's my business to go unrecognized often by my own servants.' I could see that I was becoming rather a figure in the captain's eyes. He liked the way I kept the men up to their work, for I hadn't been a nigger driver for nothing. Late on that Sunday night we passed through a great city which the captain told me was Vienna. It seemed to last for miles and miles, and to be as brightly lit as a circus. After that we were in big plains and the air grew perishing cold. Peter had come aboard once for his rations, but usually he left it to his partner, for he was lying very low. But one morning, I think it was the 5th of January, when we had passed Buda and were moving through great sodden flats just sprinkled with snow, the captain took it into his head to get me to overhaul the barge loads. Armed with a mighty typewritten list, I made a tour of the barges, beginning with the hindmost. There was a fine old stock of deadly weapons, mostly machine guns and some field pieces, and enough shells to blow up the Gallipoli Peninsula. All kinds of shell were there, from the big fourteen-inch crumps to rifle grenades and trench mortars. It made me fairly sick to see all these good things preparing for our own fellows, and I wondered whether I would not be doing my best service if I engineered a big explosion. Happily I had the common sense to remember my job and my duty, and to stick to it. Peter was in the middle of the convoy, and I found him pretty unhappy, principally through not being allowed to smoke. His companion was an ox-eyed lad, whom I ordered to the lookout while Peter and I went over the list. "'Cornelius, my old friend,' he said, "'there are some pretty toys here. With a spanner and a couple of clear hours, I could make these maxims about as deadly as bicycles. What do you say to a try?' "'I've considered that,' I said, "'but it won't do. We're on a bigger business than wrecking munition convoys.' I want to know how you got here. He smiled with that extraordinary Sunday-school docility of his. It was very simple, Cornelius. I was foolish in the café, but they have told you of that. You see, I was angry and did not reflect. They had separated us, and I could see would treat me as dirt. Therefore my bad temper came out, for, as I have told you, I do not like Germans." Peter gazed lovingly at the little bleak farms which dotted the Hungarian plain. At night I lay in trunk with no food. In the morning they fed me, and took me hundreds of miles in a train to a place which I think is called Neuburg. It was a great prison, full of English officers. I asked myself many times of the journey, what was the reason of this treatment, for I could see no sense in it. If they wanted to punish me for insulting them, they had the chance to send me off to the trenches. No one could have objected. If they thought me useless, they could have turned me back to Holland. I could not have stopped them. But they treated me as if I were a dangerous man, whereas all their conduct hitherto had shown that they thought me a fool. I could not understand it. But I had not been one night in that Neuburg place before I thought of the reason." They wanted to keep me under observation as a check upon you, Cornelius. I figured it out this way. They had given you some very important work which required them to let you into some big secret. So far 
good. They evidently thought much of you, even von Stummann, though he was as rude as a buffalo. But they did not know you fully, and they wanted to check on you. That check they found in Peter Pienaar. Peter was a fool, and if there was anything to blab, sooner or later Peter would blab it. Then they would stretch out a long arm and nip you short, wherever you were. Therefore, they must keep old Peter under their eye. That sounds likely enough, I said. It was God's truth, said Peter. And when it was all clear to me, I settled that I must escape, partly because I am a free man and do not like to be in prison, but mostly because I was not sure of myself. Some day my temper would go again, and I might say foolish things for which Cornelius would suffer. So it was very certain that I must escape. Now, Cornelius, I noticed pretty soon that there were two kinds among the prisoners. There were the real prisoners, mostly English and French, and there were humbugs. The humbugs were treated apparently like the others, but not really as I soon perceived. There was one man who passed as an English officer, another as a French-Canadian, and the others called themselves Russians. None of the honest men suspected them, but they were there as spies to hatch plots for escape and get the poor devils caught in the act, and to worm out confidences which might be of value. That is the German notion of good business. I am not a British soldier to think all men are gentlemen. I know that amongst men there are desperate skellums, so I soon picked up this game. It made me very angry, but it was a good thing for my plan. I made my resolution to escape the day I arrived at Neuburg, and on Christmas Day I had a plan made. Peter, you're an old marvel. Do you mean to say you were quite certain of getting away whenever you wanted? Quite certain, Cornelius. You see, I have been wicked in my time, and know something about the inside of prisons. You may build them like great castles, or they may be like a backfelled trunk, only mud and corrugated iron, but there is always a key and a man who keeps it, and that man can be bested. I knew I could get away, but I did not think it would be so easy. That was due to the bogus prisoners, my friends, the spies. I made great pals with them. On Christmas night we were very jolly together. I think I spotted every one of them the first day. I bragged about my past and all I had done, and I told them I was going to escape. They backed me up and promised to help. Next morning I had a plan. In the afternoon, just after dinner, I had to go to the Commandant's office. They treated me a little differently from the others, for I was not a prisoner of war, and I went there to be asked questions and be cursed as a stupid Dutchman. There was no strict guard kept there, for the place was on the second floor, and distant by many yards from any staircase. In the corridor outside the Commandant's room there was a window which had no bars, and four feet from the window the limb of a great tree. A man might reach that limb, and, if he were active as a monkey, might descend to the ground. Beyond that I knew nothing, but I am a good climber, Cornelius. I told the others of my plan. They said it was good, but no one offered to come with me. They were very noble. They declared that the scheme was mine, and I should have the fruit of it, for if more than one tried, detection was certain. I agreed and thanked them, thanked them with tears in my eyes. Then one of them very secretly produced a map. We planned out my road, for I was going straight to Holland. It was a long road, and I had no money, for they had taken all my sovereigns when I was arrested, but they promised to get a subscription up among themselves to start me. 
again I wept tears of gratitude. This was on Sunday, the day after Christmas, and I settled to make the attempt on the Wednesday afternoon. Now, Cornelius, when the lieutenant took us to see the British prisoners, you remember, he told us many things about the ways of prisons. He told us how they loved to catch a man in the act of escape so that they could use him harshly with a clear conscience. I thought of that and calculated that now my friends would have told everything to the commandant and that they would be waiting to bottle me on the Wednesday. Till then I reckoned I would be slackly guarded, for they would look on me as safe in the net. So I went out of the window next day. It was the Monday afternoon. That was a bold stroke, I said admiringly. The plan was bold, but it was not skillful, said Peter modestly. I had no money beyond seven marks, and I had but one stick of chocolate. I had no overcoat, and it was snowing hard. Further, I could not get down the tree, which had a trunk as smooth and branchless as a blue gum. For a little I thought I should be compelled to give in, and I was not happy. But I had leisure, for I did not think I would be missed before nightfall, and given time a man can do most things. By and by I found a branch which led beyond the outer wall of the yard and hung above the river. This I followed and then dropped from it into the stream. It was a drop of some yards and the water was very swift so that I nearly drowned. I would rather swim the Limpopo, Cornelius, among all the crocodiles than that icy river. Yet I managed to reach the shore and get my breath lying in the bushes. After that it was plain going, though I was very cold. I knew that I would be sought on the northern roads, as I had told my friends, for no one could dream of an ignorant Dutchman going south away from his kinsfolk. But I had learned enough from the map to know that our road lay southeast, and I had marked this big river. Did you hope to pick me up? I asked. No, Cornelius. I thought you would be traveling in first-class carriages while I should be plodding on foot. But I was set on getting to the place you spoke of. How do you call it? Constantinople, where our big business lay. I thought I might be in time for that. You're an old Trojan, Peter, I said. But go on. How did you get to that landing stage where I found you? It was a hard journey, he said meditatively. It was not easy to get beyond the barbed wire entanglements which surrounded Neuburg, yes, even across the river. But in time I reached the woods and was safe, for I did not think any German could equal me in wild country. The best of them, even their foresters, are but babes in velcraft compared with such as me. My troubles came only from hunger and cold. Then I met a Peruvian smouse. Peter meant a Polish Jew fellow, and sold him my clothes and bought from him these. I did not want to part with my own, which were better, but he gave me ten marks on the deal. After that I went into a village and ate heavily. Were you pursued? I asked. I do not think so. They had gone north, as I expected, and were looking for me at the railway stations which my friends had marked for me. I walked happily and put a bold face on it. If I saw a man or woman look at me suspiciously, I went up to them at once and talked. I told a sad tale and all believed it. I was a poor Dutchman traveling home on foot to see a dying mother, and I had been told that by the Danube I should find the main railway to take me to Holland. There were kind people who gave me food, and one woman gave me half a mark and wished me Godspeed. Then, on the last day of the year, I came to the river and found many drunkards. Was that when you resolved to get on one of their river boats? Ja, Cornelius, as soon as I heard of the boats, 
I saw where my chance lay. But you might have knocked me over with a straw when I saw you come on shore. That was good fortune, my friend. I have been thinking much about the Germans, and I will tell you the truth. It is only boldness that can baffle them. They are a most diligent people. They will think of all likely difficulties, but not of all possible ones. They have not much imagination. They are like steam engines which must keep to prepared tracks. There they will hunt any man down, but let him trek for open country, and they will be at a loss. Therefore, boldness, my friend, forever boldness. Remember, as a nation, they wear spectacles, which means that they are always peering. Peter broke off to gloat over the wedges of geese and the strings of wild swans that were always winging across those plains. His tail had bucked me up wonderfully. Our luck had held beyond all belief, and I had a kind of hope in the business now, which had been wanting before. That afternoon, too, I got another Philip. I came on deck for a breath of air and found it pretty cold after the heat of the engine room. So I called to one of the deckhands to fetch me up my cloak from the cabin, the same I had bought that first morning in the grief village. Der Grunemando, the man shouted up, and I cried yes. But the words seemed to echo in my ears, and long after he had given me the garment, I stood staring abstractedly over the bulwarks. His tone had awakened a chord of memory, or to be accurate, they had given emphasis to what before had been only blurred and vague for he had spoken the words which Stumm had uttered behind his hand to Gaudian. I heard something like ornamental, and could make nothing of it. Now I was as certain of those words as of my own existence. They had been Grunmantel. Grunmantel, whatever it might be, was the name which Stumm had not meant me to hear, which was some talisman for the task I had proposed, and which was connected in some way with the mysterious von Einen. This discovery put me in high fettle. I told myself that, considering the difficulties, I had managed to find out a wonderful amount in a very few days. It only shows what a man can do with the slenderest evidence if he keeps chewing and chewing on it. Two mornings later we lay alongside the quays at Belgrade, and I took the opportunity of stretching my legs. Peter had come ashore for a smoke, and we wandered among the battered riverside streets, and looked at the broken arches of the great railway bridge which the Germans were working at like beavers. There was a big temporary pontoon affair to take the railway across, but I calculated that the main bridge would be ready inside a month. It was a clear, cold, blue day, and as one looked south one saw ridge after ridge of snowy hills. The upper streets of the city were still fairly whole, and there were shops open where food could be got. I remember hearing English spoken, and seeing some Red Cross nurses in the custody of Austrian soldiers coming from the railway station. It would have done me a lot of good to have had a word with them. I thought of the gallant people whose capital this had been, how three times they had flung the Austrians back over the Danube, and then had only been beaten by the black treachery of their so-called allies. Somehow that morning in Belgrave gave Peter and me a new purpose in our task. It was our business to put a spoke in the wheel of this monstrous bloody juggernaut that was crushing the life out of the little heroic nations. We were just getting ready to cast off when a distinguished party arrived at the quay. There were all kinds of uniforms, German, Austrian, and Bulgarian, and amid them one stout gentleman in a fur coat and a black felt hat. 
They watched the barges up anchor, and before we began to jerk into line, I could hear their conversation. The fur coat was talking English. I reckon that's pretty good news, General, it said. If the English have run away from Gallipoli, we can use these new consignments for the bigger game. I guess it won't be long before we see the British lion moving out of Egypt with sore paws. They all laughed. The privilege of that spectacle may soon be ours, was the reply. I did not pay much attention to the talk. Indeed, I did not realize till weeks later that that was the first tidings of the great evacuation of Cape Helles. What rejoiced me was the sight of Blenkiron, as bland as a barber among those swells. Here were two of the missionaries within reasonable distance of their goal. End of chapter 9 Recording by Tom Weiss Tom's Audiobooks.com